Well, this morning I want to just continue to speak on the topic of holiness in the context of this being the Holy Week, the last week of Christ's life on earth. Not the last week of his life. (laughs) The last week of his life on earth. Because he came to live forever, just like we will live forever. But there is some significant things that happened during this week. Jesus was busy going about his father's business during this last week of his life. He had had an agenda to follow, and it it wasn't his agenda. It was certainly his father's agenda. But one thing that stood out in my mind as I read through all the events that happened that week. Jesus, his time between Jerusalem and um, Bethany and then in the temple and uh, driving out the, the den of thieves in the temple and they were using it as a place of marketplace and Jesus says, no, this is a, my father's house is a house of prayer. From all the things that Jesus did, he cursed a fig tree um, and the next day they came by it and it was, it was dead. Significance there. Uh, he, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and he said, if, as, a, as a mother, as a, as a hen would say, I would gather my chicks to myself. And he wept over Jerusalem because he didn't see the significance of what was going on that week. They didn't see the significance of his life. So many things that Jesus did. He taught his disciples, and he tried to explain to them what was going to happen. He, was gonna, he tried to explain to them that he was going to have to die, and he was going to have to go away. And he tried to his best to get through our human mind the significance of all that was going to happen that week. But the thing that stuck out to me is something that we often overlook. And it was the process. It was the event. It was the action of Jesus in the washing of his disciples' feet. And so today I want to talk about holiness in the context of washing your feet. And I pray that we're going to get some interesting things out of this today. This was a simple yet profoundly humbling and significant action of bending down, taking a bowl of water, taking off one of his garments, his outer garment, washing the feet of his disciples. Powerful. Maybe you've been a part of a foot washing ceremony at some point in time in your life. If you have, I think you understand where I'm going with this. Let's set the, let's set the stage a little bit here this morning. Let's read the scripture. John chapter 13, starting at verse 2. It says, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from his meal. First of all, let me say this. Jesus knew who he was. There was no identity crisis in the life of Jesus. And you know what? You can know who you are. There needs to be no identity crisis in your life because you are not what you think you are. You are of who Christ says you are, and you are a redeemed child of God. So don't don't miss your identity. Your identity is not made up of your desires. Your identity is in Christ Jesus. Jesus knew who he was. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? 
Then Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but wash my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Let's just pray a minute. Father, I just thank you for this word, and I pray, God, you will help us to um, discern the true meaning of what you'd have us to glean out of this. Lord, help us to understand the humility of what it means to wash each other's feet. And help us to understand what it means when it comes to a cleanliness aspect. Teach us your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Two different aspects of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples that I want to talk about this morning in the area of holiness. First one is the humble heart of holiness. The humble heart required to be holy. And then secondly, we're going to talk about the cleanliness of holiness. What does it mean? The cleanliness of holiness. Let's start about talking about the humble heart, the humble heart of holiness. First of all, we need to understand the context and the importance of, the, of why they washed feet in that day. Why did they? It's a totally foreign idea to us. I mean, to think about washing somebody else's feet in our society is really not even thought of. I mean, it's strange. It's weird. Why would I want to wash Jeff's feet or Chad's feet? Or why would Robin want to wash Pam's feet? It it just doesn't make any sense. But there was a reason for foot washing in that day. We have to go back to the society that they were living in and the living conditions. They lived in a very dry and dusty environment. And uh, they did not have running water or septic systems in their homes. Um, They had to go to public bathing areas. They had to go to either a river or a public bath area for them to do their they're bathing, they're, they're cleaning the, of their body. They couldn't do this at home. They didn't have the water. They didn't have the resources. They also wore open-toed sandals most of the time, unless it was cold, but most of the time it was open-toed sandals. And so um, they were constantly getting their feet dirty, no matter where they were. It was either muddy, and they were getting their feet muddy, or it was dusty, and they were, they were constantly having dirty, dusty feet. Even after going to a public bath, They would go and wash their hair and wash their body and throw on their robe and clothes and put their sandals on. And by the time they walked home, their feet are dirty. So they had to wash their feet before they came into the house. And so it became a, a, um, for us, it's like take off your shoes. Uh, For them, it's like you've got to wash your feet. And so it was customary then that quite often that the homeowner would have a basin of water and a towel at the door and that they would wash their feet. And for those that were in lowly position, typically you washed your own feet. But when you get into higher society or higher end places it was who had servants, uh, it was quite common for the servant to wash the guest's feet. And it was the most lowliest of servanthood. So that's why there was feet washing. That's why it was significant. It was necessary. It was part of their hygiene and it was significant. So let's think about the night now of this foot washing time when um, Jesus is talking about foot washing. This is the, during the Last Supper. This is after they're all gathered in um, and they've come up and they've uh, prepared the meal and uh, 
They're having the last fellowship time together, the last supper. And Jesus knows it's the last supper. The disciples don't really grasp it. They don't know that this is the last time they're going to be eating with Christ. But Jesus does. And there was a whole lot of different discussions going on that evening that set up this time of foot washing. We don't have a lot of detail on the order of events necessarily. The only gospel that mentions Jesus washing the feet of their disciples is the gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't even mention the foot washing aspect, but they do talk about some of the conversation that they had. And Jesus was teaching his men a lot about what was going to happen. He was preparing them for what was to come. And Jesus was telling uh, here also in this time, he, he told Peter that Satan wanted to sift him as wheat. In other words, uh, he wanted to give Peter a, an upfront heads up notice that, you know, Peter, you're going to be tested. The Satan has tested. He's asked for permission to test you. So get ready. Peter, of course, downplays it, and he says that, well, I'll die with you, Jesus. Don't worry about that. I'm good. I can handle it. Um, I'll go to the cross. I'll, I'll die with you. No matter what happens, I'm never going to discount you. I'm never going to deny you. And we all know what happens. Jesus describes the, the fact that by the, before the morning comes, before the, the, the rooster crows, Peter will have denied him three times. And uh, we all know what happened there. Jesus describes the significance of the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup uh, that says that, that the bread that he breaks is his body. And the juice or wine that they drink is his blood. And, of course, it's, it's significant. It's, it's not really his body. It's not really his blood. It doesn't, you know, when we have communion today, the, the cracker or the bread that we eat doesn't turn into the body of Christ, nor does the juice turn into the blood of Christ. It is symbolic representation of what happened that night. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Because we're to remember Christ. We're to remember his sacrifice and his giving for us and his pouring out of himself for us every time we come together until we know that the next time Jesus will do this is when we're all together in heaven and we'll do it one more time and he will serve us. Somewhere in all of these conversations, in all of this emotional, really important conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples, there is something that happens that is very surprising to us, to me at least. Luke chapter 22 tells us, somewhere throughout this conversation, verse 24 says, and they began to argue among themselves as to who would have the highest rank in the coming kingdom. Now think about this for a few minutes. Here Jesus is giving them the most important information that he's trying, that he can share with them about the last days, about his life, about what's going to happen. And he's sharing all kinds of really important information. And then all of a sudden, the guys break into an argument about who's going to be greatest. Who's going to, be the, who's going to be the greatest of us all? When Jesus sets up his new kingdom, is it going to be Peter? Is it going to be John? Is it going to be whoever? And they're arguing about it. And what a silly argument. What a silly thing. And what an what out-of-context thing for these guys to totally miss what Jesus is saying, and they want to argue about who's the greatest. But yet I, I find myself thinking, how often do we do the same thing? How often are we missing it? You know, we're having conversation, we're having prayer times, we're having uh, Bible times, we're having all kinds of important things that the Lord's trying to speak to us. And how often do we get off into our own little world of prideful thinking, just like these guys were getting? These were, these were the guys that Jesus handpicked to, to be the world changers, and here they are arguing. And this is not the first time, by the way, they've done this. If we look, we'll see in Matthew chapter 20, 
verses 20 through 21. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked, Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other your left in your kingdom. All right, so this is previous, okay, that one of the moms gets involved. That's how moms are sometimes, right? We want to get involved in our kids' activities all the time. And she comes and says, hey, I want, would you make my sons better than the rest of these guys? Could one sit on one side and one sit on the other? Another occurrence in in Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 33, it reads, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. (laughs) Again, here are these guys that are supposed to be so, so humble and so great and they're into this prideful thing. And then in Mark chapter 9, verse 46, an argument started among the d- disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Right? So here you got these guys. These are the ones that Jesus picked to spend uh, the most important three years of his life with and to feed into them and to teach them and we find them continuously in competition with each other as prideful men. And how often are we in competition with each other? So I don't think that we can really blame these guys too much because they're just human, and they're maybe they're no better. Where maybe we're no better than they are. But what that? But what the hope I do get out of this, though, is that Jesus took these guys that were in that were flawed and imperfect, and He made them into something great, and that gives me hope that He can use me, He can use you, He can use this church, He can use other people in spite of themselves, if we will just give them ourselves to him. So going back to our text this morning, here we have Jesus and his disciples on the last night, and they're having, Jesus is talking about all this important information that's going on, and, and I don't think Jesus ever really um, forgot of the fact that these guys are competitive, and I think he kind of knew all this all along, but somewhere in all of this, this argument that they're having, I can just see Jesus. I can just see him quietly getting up from the table, going over, getting the basin of water that was there at the, at the door because it was customary. And I can see him just going over and picking it up and very quietly walking over to one of his disciples, taking off his outer garment, laying, sitting the basin down and just getting down on his knees and just lifting the guy's foot, putting it in the water and start washing his feet. Now, I think that quieted the room. I think all discussion stopped. <laughs> what is he doing? Why is Jesus washing our feet? Think about that. Think about what what that must have done to the heart of those men that they were in the middle of an argument about how great we are and who's the greatest, and all of a sudden Jesus just humbly takes the servant role and he bends down and he starts washing the feet of his people. What does that mean? What does it mean? to be truly great in the kingdom of God. What does it mean? And this is, I think, the humbleness, the humility of holiness. True greatness. This is in your handout. If you want to read, you get your handout and use it for a Wait What Wednesday. This is the time to take your notes. True greatness in the context of holiness for Christ or Christ-likeness is not a matter of the outward position, but of the inward humility in spirit and heart. It's not so much who you are. It's not so much what is coming on the outside, but it's on what's in the inside is that God will use to make you great. 
Jesus was showing them by example what that true greatness, what it looks like. It, it looks like submitting to God. True greatness is serving others. True greatness is willing to take on the lowest positions in true humility. Not in falsehood, not in false humility, not to be noticed, and not to be self-serving, but with a true heart of service and love. It's to serve others without the expectation of getting anything back. That's true humility. That's true service. If I'm going to serve you with the, with the motivation that I serve you, you're going to serve me. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It sounds good, but that's not really humility because that means I'm doing it because I'm expecting to get something greater back from you. But that's not what Jesus is modeling here. What he's modeling is a true humility, a true humbleness of heart that shows that he truly is a humble servant to us. Philippians chapter 2, being in verse 3, we read, Paul writes this to the Philippians. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Remember, Christ Jesus, his mindset is true humility, true holiness, something that we as a church, as a person, need to be seeking. Continuing on in verse 6. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Pretty powerful passage of Scripture, isn't it? But I, mean just, I want to point out who, who exalted Christ. Did Christ exalt himself? Did he have the right to exalt himself? Yes, he did have the right to exalt himself. He did have the right to say, guys, listen, I'm God, and I need to, you need to serve me, and you need to come under my authority. You need to come under my leadership because I'm God. I came from heaven, and uh, yeah, you need to recognize who I am, but that's not the way Christ came, and that's not the model that he created for us to follow. Who exalted Christ? If you read it, it says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. Boy, is there a lesson in there for us this morning? Is there something there that we should be gleaning? In our struggle for success in this world, are we exalting ourselves over other people? How often do we struggle in our greatness in our own right? that we put ourselves above the guy sitting next to us or the guy in our job or, or wherever at whatever context of life that you're in, that we are constantly struggling and we're promoting our own agenda. And even if you have the right to do it, is it the right thing to do? Something we really need to think about. Greatness in the kingdom is not proven by a person's position or their office or their leadership, or their power, or their influence, or their fame, or anything else that we so often use as our measure sticks of greatness. So easy to fall into the trap of he who has the most is the ruler. 
He who has the most is the guy that is the boss. Yeah, maybe outwardly, maybe that's, the, maybe that's the way it is in the worldly kingdom, but not in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is proven other ways. God sees the heart of a man, and from what he sees on the inside determines the greatness of the man. Think about that. Where is God looking at most of the time? Our heart. Does he see the outside? Certainly. He sees it, but, that, but that's not where he measures you against. He measures you against your heart. So it's not so much what we do for God. It's who we are in relationship with him that matters the most to God. That's our identity. That's why the world is so messed up today because we don't, the world does not know their identity in Christ. Those that struggle with same-sex attraction, they declare themselves as gay or homosexual, and their identity is in their desire. They've made their desire, they've made their attraction, they made the thing that should be optional to what they should do or not do, they make, they make that their identity, and they're totally missing the point because their identity is not in what their desire is. If, if you are a liar... Do you call yourself a liar? If you are a, um, a, a person that, that wants to steal things, a kleptomaniac, do you, de- do you declare yourself, I'm, I'm kleptomaniac and proud of it? I'm a liar and proud of it? No, but the gay agenda says, I'm gay and proud of it. They're messed, they're messed up. They, they don't know who their identity is. That's part of the problem. That is the problem. Because they're allowing their choices or their desires to become their identity rather than their identity in Christ help them with their desires and help them to make the right choices because they've got it backwards. Because I feel this way, I am that way, therefore, God, you take second place in my life because I feel like I'm gay, I feel like I have same-sex attractions, therefore, that's who I am. And Jesus says, no, 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 you've, you've missed it. You've missed it. Remember the passage we just read about the mother of James and John and asked Jesus to give her sons the, right, the, the, honor, the, the places of honor right next to Jesus? Well, I want to go back and I want to tell you Jesus' answer to that. This is what Jesus told the mother and the, and the disciples. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, 28, the New Living Bible translation says it this way. Jesus called them together and said, Among the heathen, kings are tyrants, and each minor official lords it over those beneath him. But among you, it is quite different. Anyone wanting to be a leader among you must be your servant. And if you want to be right at the top, you must, be, you must serve like a slave. Your attitude must be like my own. For I, the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Holiness, Christ-likeness, requires a humble, serving heart. True godly greatness that requires that we become great in the right areas. It requires that we become right in the right areas. Listen to this. True godly greatness requires that we become great in the areas of faith and the the, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, he will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. True holiness is when our lives exude the Christ-likeness of the fruit of the Spirit. When I'm starting, when I'm, when I'm holy, I will find my life living 
with the fruit of the Spirit just flowing out of me. I don't have to work at it. I don't have to struggle with it. But my life will just be made up of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. I'll just find that. I'll just be a natural outpouring of a holy life, of a humble life. That's what Jesus was. And I guess the question for us is, are we striving for that? Is that your goal this morning? Is it my goal that we would live with this end in mind? Truly, am I living my life that I can allow Christ-likeness like this to exude from me? That I'm not self-serving. I'm not putting myself above other people. No, I am trying to serve them. I'm trying to be Christ-like in all ways. This is what God the Father says about Jesus, his son, recorded by the writer of Hebrews. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, You love justice and hate evil. Therefore, O God, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. In other words, again, God is, is, is declaring the, the identity of Christ, that Christ loves justice and he hates evil. He loves justice and he hates evil. And that's what we need more and more in our world, in our lives. We need to know what it means to love justice. And we need to know what it means to turn from evil, to turn from the ways that would take us into an unholy world that would put us into a way of living for him. That's where our world is so messed up, that we need to know how to be strong in the areas of Christ-likeness. We need to be strong in the areas of holiness. We need to love justice. We need to love the just nature of Christ, the holiness of God. We need to learn to love that and turn away from the things of evil. How do we do this? We need to develop a, a, and grow in love for the Lord, and we need to allow God's love to be proven in ourselves. How do we do this? Let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus is at the, at the temple, and he's watching those that are uh, giving their, their money, they're giving their offering. And, you know, it's interesting that we find Jesus watching this. Do you find it interesting that Jesus would watch who's giving what? Do you think he's doing it in a way that he's trying to um, see who he should bless next? Depending on who gives the most amount of money that he's going to go and say, how can I pray for you? Do you think that's why Jesus is doing it? Because he wants to reward them for how much money they're giving in the offering? Or do you think he's really looking at their heart? I think Jesus was a people watcher. I think he loved to watch people to see truly what their heart was. And we see this example given uh, of this widow that comes in. Let's read it, verse, uh, beginning at verse 1, Luke 21. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. And he also saw a poor widow put in very, two very small copper coins. And truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Now, we all know how easy it is to say we're committed. But the true proof of a person's commitment comes when they're asked to give of themselves. We said it in Sunday school, didn't we? Put your money where your mouth is. We talked about that. It's easy to say you're committed to something until it's time for you to be committed to it. (laughs) And typically, committed means coming out of your pocketbook. (laughs) That's typically the way we show our commitment today. What better proof of overall commitment than what comes out of one's pocketbook. 
Now, that's interesting. Why, what am I really saying here? Is, am I, is this a ploy? Am, am I saying this as a ploy to get your money? Am I saying this as a ploy to, give you, to get you to say, give more money to the church? You see, if you think that I am, then run away from me. <laughs> get as far as away from me as you can. This, because if you think I'm trying to scam you or scam this church in any way, shape, or form, I'm not. There are plenty of scams out there already. You don't need to be supporting a church that's trying to scam you. So that's not the point at all. Rather, if we can see that this is a real test of our character, of our faith, that we are proving our commitment not only to ourselves or to the physical church body, but we're more importantly, we're, we're proving ourselves to God that we really are trusting him with all that we have. It's one thing for the rich people to put in a lot of money because they have a lot more where that came from. But it's really significant when this poor widow put in two small copper coins, and according to what the Bible says, that's all she had to live on. You want to talk about faith? That's faith. You want to talk about honoring God? You want to talk about honoring your commitment that she would come to the temple? She, she treasures the temple so much. It's so important in her life that she's willing to give all that she has. That's not being silly. That's not being a poor steward. It's called faith, that she knows that if she gives, that she knows that her Father in heaven is going to take care of her needs. She may not know how, but she knows that he is. That's commitment. The pocketbook is the true indicator of a person's heart. Let me just say that. The pocketbook is a true indicator of a person's heart. Who and what the money is spent on gives the true identification or indication of where their heart is. If you struggle giving to the church, if you struggle giving to missions, if you struggle helping out your neighbor, if you struggle going down the road and, and maybe you know, buying a bowl of soup for somebody that doesn't have as much as you, if you struggle with that, then look at your heart. That's an indicator of what's who, who really is at the center point of your life. It's an indicator. Something we need to think about, something we need to be concerned about. So the second thing I want to talk about is cleanliness. The second point of of this foot washing is talks about the cleanliness of holiness is the aspect of what it means to be clean see other than to bring us to a point of whole of, of humble holiness now we have to look at how do we stay clean how do we stay in holy relationship how do we stay there and that's what that's what this part is talking about remember we said that they had to go to public bathing areas to bathe and they had to uh, then walk home. And by the time they, got walk, the, they walked home, even though that their body was clean, even though that their hair was clean and their face was clean and their hands were clean, by the time they got home, their feet were dusty. Well, there is some significance here for us in our spiritual life. Going back to our text, John chapter 13, um, this is what Peter's response was to, lo- to the Lord when he wanted to wash his feet. Peter said, no. You should never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Then Lord, Simon, then Lord Simon Peter replied, just don't wash my feet, but wash my hands and my head. Wash my whole body. And Jesus answered, Peter, you're missing the point. You're clean. Your body's clean. The only thing that's dirty is your feet. And what, is that, what does that mean for us today? What, what's the application that we can get out of this? This is really important because this is where we can stay faithful and we can stay successful and we can stay in victory in our spiritual life today because we don't 
have to let the enemy convince us that we're dirty because we live in a dirty world. Hear me here. This is important. Peter says, or Jesus says, your entire body doesn't need to be washed because it's already clean. You only need to wash the parts of your body that are dirty, meaning your feet. So applying this to our spiritual life, Jesus is saying, Peter, I've already forgiven you. Your life is already secure in salvation. You're already good, Peter. You're already clean. But because you're an imperfect person, and because you live and walk in an imperfect, broken world, spiritually, sometimes your feet get a little dirty because you're living in an unbrokenness. And so I don't need to rewash your whole body. I just need to wash the dirt off your feet from this broken world. Does that make sense? And it's so important that we, we see that because there is a, such a difference between intentional and deliberate sin and the accidental, unconscious sin that we act out because we're still imperfect people. We're still living in an imperfect world, and we still make mistakes. This is not condemnation. This is conviction. This is when we recognize that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to um, be in situations where my mind wanders and it thinks about things it shouldn't think about, or I, I say things I shouldn't say. I, I, my, I just blurt out with my with my anger or sometimes my temper or I, I blow it in some areas and, or I get emotional and I slip in my responses and, and how we treat our children. Um, I speak badly about others. I might slander. I might, I might in my frustration say things I shouldn't say. See, these are the things that we just need to wash our feet over. These aren't intentional sins. It, it, this is not where I'm going to premeditate it and I'm going to then continue to live in a premeditated sin. That's a whole different context. But when you and I are clean in Christ, it's important that we walk in a daily foot washing of ourselves spiritually. That I don't allow the sin to gather on my feet and then walk through my house and get my whole house dirty. No, I need to be diligent. And when I get my feet dirty, I need to stop and repent. I need to stop and say, Jesus, forgive me of my of what's happening. And, and, you know, it may not even be something that you're, you've really done. Sometimes it, you know, if you work in a tough environment, you work a bunch, around a bunch of guys that are using bad words or cussing or swearing all the time or lots of other environments, you walk home and maybe you just feel dirty. Maybe you just feel contaminated. Well, this is where you do. This is foot washing. You just say, Jesus, I, I, I just don't even, just wash that off me. And you don't have to go get resaved again. You don't have to come to the altar to get resaved. No, this is, this is why uh, it's, a, it's a continual renewal, a continual reliving. It's a continual examination of our heart. And that's why quite often we, we often give altar service, altar calls and services. And this is not to say when we do that, it's not to say you're a sinner and you're going to hell. No, what it is, it's an opportunity for you to examine your heart. It's an, ex, it's an opportunity to wash your feet. It's an opportunity for you to get the sin of the world off you. It's not, it's not bad. It's a good thing, and we need to continue to um, encourage that. There are areas that we do get dirty spiritually, and we just have to come to an understanding that we need to wash ourselves. Even after a great church service, even after a great time of personal time with the Lord, it's amazing how quick the enemy will show up with his dirt, and he'll try to throw it all over you. 
and he'll try to take your victory. He'll try to remove you from that glory spot that you're in. And you just need to pop the umbrella and say, nope, not on me. I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to receive your guilt. I'm not going to receive your, the, the dirt and the grime that the enemy wants to spew all over us. And you don't have to live that way. You can live above that through the grace of God. That's holy living. That's washing your feet on a regular basis. Jackie, would you come? And uh, we'll wind this up. Holiness is freedom. Holiness is freedom. And holiness is beautiful. And it results in a humble and a serving heart. One that keeps themselves clean in a dirty world. I, I guess if I, if I could do anything, if I could stress anything in this church, and I've been trying to do this over the past number of weeks, trying to get us to embrace holiness as a true lifestyle. That it doesn't just something we put on in church and we take off when we get home or I don't take it to work with me. No, that holiness would really become who I am. My identity is that I'm a holy and righteous and I'm forgiven and I'm clean. And yes, my feet get, might get dirty a little bit when I, when I walk in this world, but I'm just going to wash it off. I'm not going to let it change my identity. You are a redeemed child of God. That's your identity. Don't worry about the stuff that happens. We just, we're going to take care of it. Does that make sense? Is this bringing, I hope this brings some clarity to this holiness word that it's not something to be avoided, that rather it's something to be embraced, something to really look at it and say, you know, I have true freedom in holiness because I don't have, I, I don't have regrets. I don't live with, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that because I'm living holy, and that's freedom there. And it's beautiful because it's the way Christ was. Amen? Amen. Just close your eyes with me. Let's just pray. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I am so thankful that we can open up your word and we can read it for what it means and it can encourage us and it can teach us and it can show us how to live above the stuff of this world. Lord, time is short here. And we know that we have to be about our Father's business just as Jesus was in his last week. So God, I pray that we would not get caught up in the trivial nature of this world, that we would not be bogged down by the cares of this world, but Lord, that we would be able to throw off the cares of this world and keep our eyes focused on Christ, yet at the same time, our hands and feet busy working in this world to being relevant here so that we can have heavenly effectiveness, that we can be working here hard, but yet we can be keeping our eyes focused on Christ all the while. That, Lord, that you would be constantly, that we would be constantly washing our spiritual feet in a, in a, in a life of holiness, of freedom, of beautifulness. So this morning, I just want to encourage you this morning to walk in that today. If you ever feel, when you feel, not if, when you feel the Holy Spirit's conviction, be quick to say, Father, I'm washing them. This morning, if you, if you feel that this morning and you just need prayer, I'm going to open the altars this morning and you can come up as we're singing and we're just going to, use, we're just going to end the service in this way that we just want to offer you an opportunity to examine your heart, not because you're sinners, you're redeemed children of God that have maybe dirty feet. <laughs> and that's all we have to do is wash our feet this morning. Amen. Jackie, would you lead us in that song? And if you want to come up and pray, the altars are open. 
We just want to just give the Lord an opportunity to work. There are things as we travel this earth shifting sands that transcend all the reasons of man. But the things that matter the most in this world, they can never be held in our hands. I believe whatever the cost. And when time is surrendered and earth is no more, I still cling to that old rugged cross. I believe that the who was slain on that cross has a power to change lives today. For he changed me completely, a new life is mine. That is why by the Father, we are so grateful for that cross. So, Lord, as we think about what that means to us this week, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday next week, we thank you, Lord, for what that means to us, for what you have accomplished for us. And, Lord, and help us this week to walk in a, in a way that is above the fray of this world. Just give us your peace. Give us your patience. Give us your goodness, your kindness, your gentleness. Lord, the self-control that we have, the fruit of the Spirit, let it exude from us as it did from you. And I just pray your blessing on your people today as they go. Bless them, encourage them, and strengthen them. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Be blessed today.